Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is Grammy-nominated producer, engineer, and scoring mixer, Jason LaRocca. But let's start here. For those of you who want to release vinyl records, it looks like the backlog has finally been cleared. It wasn't that long ago when it took up to nine months to get your record back from the pressing plant. But now, even with the 15% increase in releases, the turnaround time has dropped to between two and eight weeks. This is all thanks to many new plants that have come online worldwide. For instance, back in 2015, there were only 21 pressing plants in the United States. Now there are 99 plants in the U.S. alone. Plus, there's no longer supply chain issues with PVC like we're having during the pandemic. One downside to all this is the fact that vinyl is no longer as thick as it once was. 180 gram used to be the standard and now it's down to about 140 grams. It's not a problem because it makes no difference to the sound, but the record does feel a lot flimsier, a lot different. CDs are coming back too, and this is thanks to K-pop in particular. The hottest new item is called S-Mini, and they're essentially small key rings that look like mini CDs. They have a QR code that leads you to a download link where you can then find the music that's linked to the S-Mini. They are collectible and unique to each artist, and it allows the fans to buy something physical that's on vinyl or cassette or CD. Finally, more and more artists are turning to colored vinyl for limited collectible releases, and this is driving the demand also. So you might ask, what are the biggest factors for the vinyl resurgence, which is bigger than anyone would have predicted? Well, Record Store Day has made a big difference, and this went from being one weekend event happened around April to three a year, and it makes a big difference in terms of new releases, which in turn makes people go out and buy. The pandemic also made a big difference in the fact that people stayed at home and they bought a lot of vinyl, mostly online, and as a result, they got into it by listening and discovering how good it sounds. There's also a little bit of a digital burnout, I think, from people that just find that they like the sound a lot better of analog. And then finally, there's the collectability aspect, where there are many vinyl buyers that never played the record, not even once, but they buy it because they feel that someday this record is going to be collectible and they can make some money off of it. All this means that the vinyl resurgence shows no sign of slowing down, which is so surprising for part of the industry that 20 years ago was given up for dead. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that my new Musician's AI Handbook is now available. It's packed with information about how AI can help you with new song, lyric, mixing, and mastering ideas, as well as music marketing to help get your music out to an audience that you deserve. Get your copy, go to bobbyosinski.com forward slash AI Handbook. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash AI Handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. Now, nobody really knows which songs are going to resonate with the public, and artists, bands, managers, and record labels have a long history of not recognizing a hit when they hear it. In fact, some of the biggest and most influential hits of all time nearly didn't make their respective albums. This includes Billie Jean by Michael Jackson, 
whose producer Quincy Jones didn't like the intro or the bass line and the title. Jackson won the argument, though, and won a Grammy as a result. Another was Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. Everybody knows the story of Keith Richards waking up in the middle of the night with that famous riff in his head and recording it on a portable cassette recorder and then falling back to sleep. What most don't know is that the group struggled to make the song that we know as the final hit version. The band initially finished the song as an acoustic Bob Dylan-style song, which didn't make anybody happy. Thankfully, they rocked it up and added the distinctive fuzz guitar riff that changed guitar sounds forever. And speaking of Bob Dylan, his breakthrough hit, Like a Rolling Stone, almost didn't make the cut because his record label, the giant Columbia Records, didn't believe that the record was marketable because it was too rock compared to the acoustic material that Dylan was known for. Also, it's over six minutes, and the label believed that that was way too long. Dylan took a tape of the song to a posh Manhattan club, where the DJ played it to a raving audience. And since it was an upscale club, there were a lot of important music business people in attendance, and Columbia was convinced to not only include it on the album, but release it as a song without any edits. Another song deemed too long is Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen, which the band was proud of, but initially didn't really like. The record label clearly disliked it and wanted the band to remove it from the album before release. The label was only convinced after a DJ began playing a tape that the band gave him and the audience demand increased. The song went to top the charts for nine weeks. Finally, the song that broke Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit, nearly didn't make it on the band's album because the writer, singer Kurt Cobain, thought it sounded too much like a Pixies ripoff, and also felt that the chorus was too close to Boston's more than a feeling. I don't hear it myself, actually. In this case, it was pressure from producer Butch Vig and the record label that convinced Cobain to include the song on the album, and the rest is history. It went on to change music as grunge entered the mainstream. These are just five examples of dozens of hits that people who should know better had doubts about. The fact of the matter is that no one really knows what the public will like, and careers have been made out of that fact. My guest this week is Grammy-nominated producer, engineer, and scoring mixer Jason LaRocca, who's recorded and mixed music for major motion pictures, games, and television. Known for mixing the score of the Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power series, Marvel's Morbius, and more, Jason recently mixed the Grammy-nominated albums Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Suite, and the God of War Ragnarok soundtrack. He's also recorded and mixed for such top recording artists as Jay-Z, CeeLo Green, Fiona Apple, Schoolboy Q, and Serge Tankanian of System of a Down. Jason was my guest back on Podcast 441 a couple of years ago, but I thought I'd have him back to give us an update on what's going on in television, gaming, and film mixing. During the interview, we spoke about the enormous number of tracks required to record Sweeney Todd, the difference between mixing a Broadway record and a game soundtrack, whether automation or clip gain is faster, his approach to immersive mixing, mixing trends in film and TV, and much more. I spoke with Jason from his studio in Los Angeles. You were nominated for uh, Sweeney Todd, the soundtrack and the video game Ragnarok, God of War. Take me to both of those because I'm sure your approach is different. Very different. Yeah, between the two projects. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's it's cool, first of all, that that the video game category exists now in the Grammys because I think it's only two years old now. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's 
there's a lot of great soundtracks, obviously, that that get made for video games. It's nice to see that finally get acknowledged. We did that one actually mixed it over the pandemic. So that was an interesting one just logistically because of the nature of how things were having to be done uh, from a recording standpoint. And um, like, for instance, there was a lot of choir sessions that were done, I think, in Iceland. And, uh, you know, everybody had to be, you know, separated six feet apart. And they were just especially on that project, there were so many microphones because everything was very spot mic'd because everybody was so separated, you know? So that project, just like one single session had easily 12 to 1500 tracks just because of how many microphones were used. And then of course, everything was done in, in a lot of different passes. So if we had even just the brass sessions alone were usually you know, horns recorded separately, you know, low brass recorded separately and trumpets recorded separately a lot of the time. So those, you know, some odd 40 to 50 microphones were, you know, 150 microphones once you recorded just the brass. And again, it was because of some of the logistical issues of having to have everybody spread apart. We had a lot more microphones than usual. Uh, So just the vertical view of these sessions was, was, uh, you know, pretty formidable. So that, but it was fun. I mean, it was obviously a lot of work, but you know, we were all hunkered down and didn't have anywhere to go anyway. So, yeah. Did, <laughs> did you have any problem with computer horsepower with that? Matrix? Uh, yeah. Yeah. There was a few, there was a few, I, I was still mixing on HDX at the time. I wasn't native yet myself just because I was using a fair number of plugins that were running uh, that seemed to be working better in, in DSP mode. And so on that project, I sort of stuck with the HDX mode, which obviously had its limitations to track count. So I had to be a little bit creative in terms of how I used what available tracks I had. And that was probably the biggest issue was track count, just not having enough of it sometimes. So we had to bounce certain things down. We actually did some submixing. So we would take, you know, a balance of brass or choir or something like that that we liked, and we would bounce it down to a, a surround one single surround track, you know, um, four tracks or five tracks or something like that. So we can free up some some channels. So that was a little bit tricky having to do that before we got to the end of a mix. I would have to sort of decide on some things and go. This is going to be a balance I'm going to like, and if I don't like it, we can go back and you know, resubmix it. So I'm glad to be past that and not doing HDX. I mean, I have HDX cards still, but I, I do everything hybrid now and, and the track count is, is not an issue anymore. But it was during that project had a little bit of a, really nothing DSP wise as far as plugins and the computer horsepower was fine. It was really just the the limitation of, of the cards, which, you know, was just because of how I, my, structure was was set up that way at the time which i've since gotten rid of what is a typical track count for you i mean those sessions are i guess are typical of something you know uh, of the larger projects we do like you know like the lord of the rings uh rings of power show was was also like a lot of those sessions were pretty large you know about a thousand tracks a session 
a lot of that is because of the orchestra being recorded all in pieces and not recorded at one time. So every orchestra pass has 50 microphones in it, and we do as many as 10 passes of the orchestra to get everybody recorded separately. So sessions like that, like for, for Lauren Balf movies, you know, like the Dungeons and Dragons movie, it was kind of the same thing. A lot of different passes of orchestra that just add up to a lot of tracks very quickly. So those sessions are usually about a thousand tracks as well. So for, for the larger films where everybody's recording the orchestra and a lot of different uh, separate passes, we have usually about a thousand tracks. That's a lot. Yeah. And I, you know, and I, I try and, I try and mix, I mean, I, I have been mixing still quite a bit of 5.1. So not as much 7.1, although obviously that's, that's pretty standard too, but that's also part of what, you know, gets that track count pretty quickly up there. You know, it's when it's once I've got five one buses and seven one buses and stuff like that. My track count gets gets pretty large pretty quickly because we're usually having to do everything in stems. So I don't deliver just a stereo mix. I have to deliver, you know, a low percussion master, a high percussion master and orchestra strings, orchestra brass, orchestra woodwinds and those track counts become a thousand tracks quickly only because of the nature of film and video game and television music and how we have to deliver it. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, actually. When I did the music for a few movies, I didn't do that many, less than 10. And it was mostly pop music that I was delivering, so it's different than orchestral. But they would ask me for anything that was tinkly and high, separate as a separate stem, and bass or anything low. And then it was spread out, drums, percussion, and anything else and a vocal that was separate and sure. that, that was basically what they wanted yep. so it's a, you know similar in a way to what you wanted to what you do but again it's everything is different when it comes to uh, orchestral yeah and and i think you know the more the more you can give somebody to be able to edit and fix things later without them having to call you and have you you know reprint uh, or remix something is kind of what drives my final choice on how the layout lives for a film. Because if I can give them the strings, the brass, the winds, the choir, the high percussion, mid percussion, and low percussion, all separate from each other for the orchestra, then I know I'm not going to get any calls back <laughs> because they've got everything. Yeah, right. They've got everything pretty separated. It's It's all kind of mastered and, and equals a, a really well-balanced mix, but they can they can edit it and change it if they want. And that that kind of frees me up to be able to, you know, be on the next mix or the next project that I'm on and not have to worry about pulling up and recalling what I just did so that I can give them a split. So I try and just make it pretty wide now, you know, and like you're saying, give, you know, the high tinkly things, the the vocals, obviously anytime there's vocals and and even pulsing pads separated from ambient pads and things like that like really sort of all the different colors being separate gives the editor who takes it from me and and can you know make part of the discussion too is like how it conforms to picture because you know i i finish the mix but then they might have to change the music again after i've mixed it because they made a picture change so for them to make a picture change, they need flexibility in terms of what stems they have control over and can edit and and fix to make 
musical choices to, you know, fairly severe cuts sometimes. So it's also for an editor so that they can, you know, fix the music after I've mixed it, if there needs to be changes to the picture. And then it also gives the, the final mix engineer, the dub uh, mixer, the ability to make any crucial rides they need to make against the dialogue as well. Okay, here's a question for you. So in that case, are you using separate effects for each stem? Yeah. Yeah, I have basically, um, in, in my in my templates are basically laid out where every, say there's a, uh, uh, I'll have like a high percussion stem that will be where I put tambourines and shakers. So the tambourines and shakers go to their own, I have a dedicated 5-1 delay, 5-1 short reverb and 5-1 long reverb so that I can throw those tambourines and shakers into any one of those reverb sends and they're already assigned to a stem master for just the high percussion. So the reverb, the delay, and the room simulation and all that go down one 5.1 master just for the high percussion. And I build that into the template so that I don't have to do it when the mix starts. I've already got a lot of that routing kind of built into the setup and it sounds kind of already how I want it. Like I've, you know, the, the length of the short room simulation and the length of the, the long and the taps of my delays are all basically how I want them. And then I'll fine tailor them, but their routing and all that stuff's already been taken care of. Let's go to uh, Sweeney Todd because here we go. It's Broadway yeah. and very different for me. <laughs> yeah. 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 So you know, I, I had never mixed a, a Broadway record before. So, I didn't really know much of what I was getting into. I was, you know, somewhat of a fan of of the story and of the show, uh, the Sweeney Todd show, and a huge fan of Josh Groban. So I was really excited to do it for those reasons and work with, you know, get a chance to work with Alex Lackamore, who I'm also a big fan of. And um, I figured this, this is sort of like a dream to be able to work with these guys and work on something that has obviously got such a legendary uh, legacy. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work. We worked on we worked on the mixes for almost four months, actually. Wow. And yeah, we worked on it for, for quite some time. And, and it was, I, think, I can't remember how long it was, just over two hours, somewhere, I think almost two and a half hours of, of music that we mixed. I'm not sure that every single thing ended up in the, final soundtrack but yeah i think we mixed about two and a half hours of music and uh it was really interesting there was a, they they were working in new york and i i was working here in la so everything that i did from a mix perspective was all done remotely uh with mostly with lack i, I mostly worked with alex lackamore on my mixes and didn't really work directly with with anybody else in terms of what i was doing but they were recording in new york because the cast of course was was still doing the show so they would on on weekends or whenever it was they were not doing the show they would be in the studio recording it and then they would send me you know finished uh songs and then i would get started on them and of course you know i mean the, the opening <laughs> you know the ballad sweeney todd that was you know that was the that was the opus for me that was that was a big mix it, it doesn't necessarily maybe sound like there was a lot that went into it but there's a lot of fine detail especially on the vocals that we get into very micro edits as far as volumes on every single word and every single you know cast members uh lyrics 
and making sure that everything is exactly where we want it. So it was it was very detailed. Is that all clip game then? It was clip game madness. Yes, it became my best friend. <laughs> <laughs> I love clip game, and you know, I was I was coming up with different ways of of approaching it where I would how you know should I should I clip gain one long clip gain line or should I just cut up every single word and make it its own region and just clip gain every single word region and I tried it a lot of different ways I think I ended up settling on the the cutting up every single word as its own clip actually started to kind of end up making the most sense because it just was easier to you know if I have, because I have a, you know, one of those little scroll knob things. So if I scroll down the side, it just clip gains it up really fast. So that ended up being the fastest way to do it. So wow. it was, uh, yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's funny because for such a long time, everybody used automation for stuff like that. And then it was like, well, clip gain is actually easier. And, you know, it's easier in that you can see what you're doing. Oh, well, that's exactly why I love it. It, yeah. it make the revisions and you know instead of having to to rewrite the automation but yet when you're telling me this i'm thinking to myself well, wouldn't automation actually be faster but i guess not <laughs> you know I, it was a combination of a lot of things we definitely i did automation i did clip gain and depending on what was needed sometimes the move was a fader move sometimes the move was clip gain it depended also on how i was compressing things obviously so if i was comp- clip gaining to a certain degree it doesn't make any difference if i'm compressing the vocal so i could go usually about three or four db with clip gain and then at a certain point i have to do fader moves Mm -hmm. for it to actually make a difference so yeah it's a combination of the two but i think i'm faster with clip gain and i like being able to see it I, i definitely like being able to see what i'm doing and and having the visual feedback makes me i think faster a little bit more accurate with it I mean, when you get down to like the way the S is in, you know, in the word shit or whatever, which of course there are swear words in the, in the show and, you know, you can get into that, that fine little microsecond of exactly how the the S starts. And, and, uh, if you want to hit the DS or harder, you can do it with clip game. But if you want to, you know, make the volume louder without hitting the DS or I'll do with automation. So it just kind of depended on, on how far I was trying to go with hitting the dynamics versus you know doing it post the dynamics boy that is micro that's micro mixing there it was micro it was very 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 micro (laughs) and you know it's a lot of lyrics in that show and a lot of very interesting overlapping lyrics constantly so you know trying to keep everybody's veered off lyrics and melodies make sense in the context is I was studied the, the original mixes a lot, uh, you know, the Angela Lansbury soundtrack. I studied it a lot and I was just listening to it. It's actually a fantastic recording, obviously, and and a really fantastic mix. I I used a lot of it as a as a reference very often in terms of how they did it and what they did, you know, panoramically, because if you know, I I've I went to see the show before I mixed it and there's a lot of really crucial movements across the stage of the characters being in in various places. So that actually plays a really important part in the mix, which I wouldn't have known had I not gone and seen the show, the show that reflects the the current modern recording. So yeah, I kind of used that too as as kind of a guide for how to approach the 
the panning and where everybody was. You mentioned about the previous recording, the original recording. Yeah. And they obviously didn't have the same tools that we have today. I, it, I was, yeah, it was actually kind of like, I was like, wow, you guys, <laughs> you guys are incredible. What, however they did it because yeah, they didn't, they didn't have clip gain, you know, they didn't have the ability to micromanage these things. And there, there are obvious places in the recordings and the mixes where you can tell, obviously they didn't have that ability and didn't go in there and, and get in there with a fine tooth comb, but there's so much detail in it regardless of that with the technology at the time how they did it i have no idea because it it's it's really kind of breathtaking actually and a lot of it's live too which is also pretty incredible yeah yeah right did you have to develop a new template for this totally new yeah i completely started from the ground up i i, I really wasn't sure how i wanted to approach it and and wanted to kind of approach it a little bit how I approach film and TV mixing in that I did still create a lot of bus masters for every group of sounds that were in the room. So I had a bus master for, uh, for the drums, I had a bus master for the strings, for the brass, for the winds, the harp, and the uh, organ player. And then of course all the vocals. But but the band recorded live. So all the aforementioned instruments were all done at the same time. But I still wanted to make subgroups for all of them so that I could compress and EQ them as subgroups a certain way and and sort of hit the the you know the subgroups a certain way. And by doing that, I also printed each one of those subgroups as stems before they hit a master two mix. So they actually have kind of like what I deliver for a, a dub stage. They have all these subgroup instruments uh, separated that together add up to the two mix. But if they want to, they could go in and, and actually mute almost entirely the, the drums if they wanted to. And to be able to do that, I actually didn't use many room mics at all. I used almost all close mics so that I could actually really change the balance of the instruments in the room and not be tied to what the room was hearing. Mm, yeah. Really completely change the perspective of how the drums were and sat with the strings. And the strings obviously were the hardest to get right because they're the quietest in the room. There was only, um, I think, six, either six or eight string players, something like that. It wasn't a lot and we had to get a lot out of them. So actually it was nine. And they were kind of the trickiest part of how to get that to sound like obviously more string players and get all the fine detail of their performances to sit against what was often loud drums and loud brass. And so I, I got rid of the any overhead mics or any you know room mics or anything like that. I was the first thing I did was I basically muted that stuff, which made a lot of it sound very dry and very close. And then my next problem was, well, how do I make it sound like it's in a room, but I'm using spot mics as my source. And that was when I sat for several days getting just the right combination of, of uh, room simulation reverbs to kind of make the strings sound like they were played very loudly in the room, but using spot mics as my source. So I, I had to rebuild the template completely because I didn't really have anything that, that was, you know, 
facilitating that kind of approach to the mix, basically. Just out of curiosity, what reverbs did you use? So I settled with a couple of different things. I had for the room simulation, I had the Ocean Way. I think I used the Studio A, probably used the the string position uh, in Studio A and the M50 mics. And then, and then I combined that with a theater uh, from Altiverb. And uh, I'll, I'll see if I can pull it up too, because I, I, it, it was a combination of the two. It was an Altiverb and, and it was a Ocean Way uh, room simulation. And the two together were kind of what made the, the early reflections of the strings sound like they were played loudly in a, in a large room. And then I used, for the sort of hall sound, I used um, Symphony 3D, the Isotope Symphony 3D. And I used some sort of a hall from Altiverb as well. And I used a, a Liquid Sonics uh, Seventh Heaven. So, so the three reverbs kind of would, I would tweak them from section to section or from song to song to kind of get the right balance. But I kind of felt like I needed each one of those reverbs to kind of give me just the right amount of compliment to each other to kind of never really hear the reverb, but, but, but know something is there and feel like you're, you're pushing into a space that felt larger than they were actually in. Very cool. Tell me about your setup. So you're not doing anything analog, are you? No, this is it. This is it. I'm pretty much just all in the box. I've got some outboard gear. Oh, that's right. You're not doing video, Yeah. but I've got some outboard gear. It's mostly all in the box though. I really don't use the outboard gear all that much. If I do, I'll just print it. You know, like if I have, um, I have a little bit of a modular setup. So with my modular setup, I'll process things through the clouds, uh, which is a company called Mutable Instruments makes this interesting pitch shifter. So sometimes I'll do stuff through that, but I'll print it right away. I'll just make a sound and then I'll print it back into Pro Tools and then I'll turn it off. So yeah, I don't really use the analog gear. I just use plugins. There's no, I mean, for obvious reasons, I think, you know, I just, there's no, there's no time to be able to go and, and futz with the analog gear on recalling, you know, when you're working on two or three different projects throughout the day. Yeah. And it never seems to sound the same when you bring it back. <laughs> yeah. I, I get very, you know, I'm always suspicious that nothing's working right. So yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like the analog gear and me just don't get along these days, you know? <laughs> I keep it around. It's fun. I do like it. And when people walk into the studio, they, they feel nostalgic and like to talk about it for 10 minutes, but it's, <laughs> it's very rare that it ends up on anything crucial. How about your monitors? What are you using? Yeah, these are Myers. They're, they have lights shining up on them that, that make them look like blue horns, but they're not blue horns. They're actually just the original Asheron design. And, uh, these are used in a lot of different studios now, but Skywalker was, is still, you know, a pretty big proponent of, of them. And they use them in their dub stages and they have them on the, um, you know, the Fox scoring stage and, you know, a lot of different places that I've been to and can be familiar with the sound of, of how they, how they interact with, with my ear. I, I didn't like them at first because I actually used them in another studio that I was renting and had, they were the only thing there. So I, uh, took me a while to get used to them, but that was 2016. So I've, I've gotten pretty used to them now over the last seven or eight years. I like them a lot and they're really, they're a brutally honest speaker. 
and they're a horn-driven speaker, which most people don't like. They're a little bit, a little bit tough sometimes to get over that initial whoa. You know, they're not like an ATC where you listen to them and you feel just like, oh, everything sounds soothing and fantastic. Yeah, you know, they are very, uh, you know, very clinical sort of speaker. But their imaging is really, really great. That's probably the the best part of it. It's like especially when when I'm micro panning things, I can really do that very accurately. I remember when I moved to California to LA and um, I'd be going into various studios and anything that was post production, they were using Altec six oh fours. So you know, speaking of horns, and then everybody went away from it. And I remember going back into a studio that still had 604s and they played me something. I went, whoa, what, what's going on? But in a way, it was actually kind of cool because as you say, it was clinical. Yeah. And it's, it was quite unexpected, but it wasn't yeah. bad at all. It was just, you know, different. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that obviously they their, their plus point, which in, in many, I think, instances why they're used in theaters and on dub stages is they have a lot of power, you know, and the horn driven speaker, especially these, they're basically PA speakers. Yeah. 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 And that's what Meyer is famous for. You know, there's just an incredible amount of power in these speakers. So the distortion, the zero distortion factor is also really interesting because I can never, you know, I never play loud enough to get these things anywhere near distortion. So that effect is really, really interesting because you really hear the honesty of what's coming out of, of the speakers because there's just nothing interfering with it there's no modulation of any kind it's like just straight off the speaker to your ear and i'm pretty close to them so i'm I'm closer than i'm supposed to be probably but um i kind of like that i'm kind of just like right up inside them one of the things that bugs me about many brands of of active monitors is the fact that they're limited and i understand mm -hmm. why they are but sometimes you hit the limiter and it just changes the sound it's like oh sure. well Sure, sure. It was great yeah. until then, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think on, you know, a smaller near-field speaker, that's definitely tough. I have BM15s as well, the Dynaudios, and I love those speakers, but they have that issue, you know, where they just, the low end starts to, I think that's, you know, pretty common among a lot of smaller near-fields is that the low end will, at sooner than you want it to, it'll start to limit and give in. But these these are also crossed over, so... I literally will never have that issue on the on these speakers. They do have a limiter on them, and I have no idea what decibel level it <laughs> takes to make, to make it hit that, but I haven't. So, you know, especially with the crossover, I think it's it's probably impossible. Are you doing much immersive, Atmos or Sony? You know, a lot of the score mixing and a lot of the music mixing for film and TV is, is going up to about 712, up until, at least up until this point in 2024 i think probably this year we'll probably see some changes in that for sure i've done a little bit in immersive and i did the uh the warner brothers logo which hasn't been released yet but we did that in immersive and i used 916 as sort of a, a basic panning bed for for the orchestra and the flash we did in 712 and a lot other than that is usually just a 7-1 bed for a lot of score mixes. So not much object-based stuff, you know, usually a lot of basic uh, Atmos beds, usually for the score stuff. It's it's just more manageable to have it be printed and delivered as a number of, of uh, 
surround beds rather than get too into, well, who's fighting for what objects and, yeah, you know, when you're delivering from studio to studio, that's really difficult to do. It makes a lot of sense, but it's funny because for music mixing, everybody I know that that's deep into it, they're all objects and very few beds. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the objects are fantastic when you have kind of rain over the whole thing yourself and you don't have to worry about, you know, uh, playing nice with anybody else when, in the, when the music is a part of many other submixes like effects and dialogue and stuff like that, we just have, we're limited to what we can just assume we can use in terms of the objects that are available to us. So I keep the music pretty contained within, you know, usually just basic beds, but, uh, sometimes we, we get into the object stuff and it's, it's usually just for like a, you know, a, a single instrument or something like that. It's not, it's not usually the whole mix of, and using all, you know, 126 objects or something like that. So here we are in 2024. Are you seeing any trends in what you're doing in <laughs> gear, techniques, anything like that? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think it's really, it's really tough to say. I, I have, from a mixing perspective, I feel like I'm starting to see, you know, trends maybe in terms of like how I, of approaching mixing and having to deliver mixes and that sort of thing. But I do think that there's going to be, I think, it, well, I, I, so I saw your thing recently talking about AI and that's probably, you know, I, I'd like to get more into learning a lot about that because, you know, I don't know what's to come from that. And in terms of how that interacts with somebody like me and, and doing what I do and composers and doing what they do and, you know, there's, there's, I feel like a lot that's going to change very quickly over the course of the year. But I do think that immersive is, is here to stay in some capacity and maybe the format of how that works exactly is going to probably change a little bit here and there, but I, I don't see that being any less than seven, one or higher for, for most things that we do. And that probably nine, one, six will become you know, the new standard pretty quickly, I feel like, for music delivery, uh, for film and for TV. Yeah. And then obviously Atmos, I, you know, I don't know, you know, you'd probably know better than me in terms of the fate of Atmos. I, I feel like that's, it's fantastic. And I think it, you know, Apple is, Apple is, uh, I think made it pretty clear that they don't want it going anywhere. Well, Samsung and Google has, have a new format coming out that's uh, open source. So that might be interesting. And everyone I've talked to that's worked in Sony 360 has loved it. Yeah. Because apparently it's easier. I haven't done anything in that, so I don't know. I've looked at it, but that's about it. But it it does look like it's easier just the way it's laid out in, in the DAW. But again, it's not Atmos, and you don't have any of the, the streaming services behind it. Right, right. And I think that's going to it's not going to go anywhere unless that happens, you know, certainly not to the consumer world. Uh, Cause we've seen that happen. That attempt has happened many times in the past. Right? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's it from, from my mixed perspective, I, well, actually what's really nice, I got to say is that there isn't, I don't feel like there's as much demand for me to keep making things get louder, which I do like that. There seems to be a little bit of a, everybody's cooled off a little bit in terms of that, especially with the Atmos mix, you know, standards and that sort of thing. So that's cool. And I do like that that seems to kind of 
become a little bit of a trend um, is that there seems to be a little bit more of a cool off on what's the standard and what's the what's the standard uh, for sort of a final volume and what's acceptable. Uh, I feel like things are can be a little bit more dynamic and listenable to my ear now. So that's cool. I have I have been delivering more. They've been, there've been a, a lot more leniency in terms of how I deliver my loudness and my final outputs. Hooray for that. <laughs> I think so. I think it's great. I mean, you know, the loudness wars was, you know, kind of a weird thing, you know? Yeah, definitely. Well, <laughs> Congratulations on your Grammy nominations. Fingers crossed that you'll win. Yeah, I think it'll be cool. I think there's, you know, a lot of a lot of really great nominated music out there. I mean, even in the two categories that I have records in, I think I'm a huge fan of of all that material. And there's some, you know, phenomenal sounding stuff this year. So, you know, regardless of of whatever happens, I think it's really great to have been nominated and acknowledged. I think that's really cool and that's just right there to me is kind of the most the validation I was hoping for, really. <laughs> just somebody to go, hey, this was cool. You can find out more about Jason at jasontherocca.com. That's Jason Larocca, J-A-S-O-N-L-A-R-O-C-C-A, all one word, jasontherocca.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. You can also learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There, you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find an Apple Podcasts, Apple Music, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.